Welcome to the podcast that helps you build wealth and thrive in a world of out of control central banks and big governments. This is the Rebel Capitalist Show. Hello, fellow Rebel Capitalists. Hope you're well. Want to encourage everybody to check out rebelcapitalistlive.com. You got about one month to get your tickets to what will be the greatest event in human history. <laughs> I can promise you that. Well, at least if you're someone who values freedom, liberty, free market capitalism, and making good decisions for your portfolio, what will, which uh, for the rest of what will most likely be a very tumultuous 2023. Let's go right over to the homepage. I want to remind everyone of the incredible speakers we've got. We've got Mike Maloney, Peter Schiff, Robert Barnes, Kenny McElroy, Chris McIntosh, Jason Hartman, Lynn Alden, Simon Black from SovereignMan.com, MC Robert Helms, Brent Johnson, Jeff Snyder, and Bob Murphy. And yours truly will be speaking as well. So guys, it says 32 days to get your tickets. Can't wait till the last minute. You got to get them ASAP. So go to rebelcapitalistlive.com. Get your tickets today. Getting back to the live stream. Let's check out the questions we got for this evening. Oh, by the way, happy Easter. Everyone want to start with that. In history, nations who had the reserve currency lost total power, but it took decades to finalize. We know sovereign nations are now de-dollarizing. Do you think this time it'll happen faster? No, I think it'll just happen like it always does. There's nothing that would lead me to believe that it'll happen any faster. Uh, if anything, maybe even a little slower because the dollar network is a lot more powerful than any other network that a reserve currency had because the global monetary system is so interconnected. So it's something that probably started a decade ago, maybe longer, and it'll probably take three or four decades to play out. So, and this is always what you see. I mean, if you would have gone back into the 2020s and we would have had social media, you don't think that we would have been hearing the exact same story, how all of these countries are are now de-pounding, de-pounding, de-dollarization, pounderization. <laughs> I'm trying to turn that. It's not a, a de-poundization. Maybe that's the correct terminology. But that's what you'd be hearing on Twitter in the 1920s. That's what you would have been hearing on the uh, in the mainstream media. The Tucker Carlson of the 1920s, I'm sure, would have been saying something similar. And it would have been true. Yeah, everyone is depounding. We'll just call it that. <laughs> and uh, But still, it took a long time. It took a couple decades, and it didn't get finalized or formalized until 1944, Bretton Woods. But it's a process. It always is. And this is always how the process plays out. I mean, would you expect anything less? No, of course not. Uh, you wouldn't expect this to happen overnight. And so while the process was occurring, this these are the headlines that you would expect to see. But the world doesn't go from having called $100 plus trillion on their balance sheet, well, I'm not going to say zero, but to amount low enough to where it would bring another currency or a group of currencies to a point where the amount of transactions that though that group of currencies accounted for more than the dollar. You know, right now the dollar is about 65% of global transactions are settled. Then you look at FX, and it's like, you know, the dollar's, well, I think one half, like 90% of the transactions. I mean, it's astronomical. So yeah, it's gonna go down to 65, and then it's gonna go down to 60, and then it's gonna go down to 50, then 
40 than than 30 but even when you you're at 30 you know who's coming up in as far as second place is it the yuan okay well they're two or three five percent right now so even with the dollar at 30 or 35 it still may be the the major currency although it's deteriorated uh to a significant degree but that takes decades yeah like i said in that last video it's definitely something that's happening that's for sure and it's something you need to be cognizant of but it takes decades it doesn't happen in days weeks or years and if you want to think through why go through a thought experiment of instead of just focus focusing on the dollars that are on the asset side of the balance sheet just take the whole global balance sheet and turn it into one you got the dollars on the asset side but then you got to realize that the majority of those dollars were created by lending them into existence so you got 100 trillion on the asset side you got 100 trillion on the on the uh, liability side those loans so then once you think that through even if saudi arabia dumps all their dollars okay well that doesn't really change the asset side does it because those dollars just go somewhere else and then it doesn't change the liability side you know that ratio doesn't really change unless the uh, united states is able to create enough dollars to where they get outside of the system to where that that balance or that ratio would be changed to a degree to a point where it would actually impact the dollar value against other fiat currencies and if you think that okay i mean i went through that thought experiment in my video where i said say they just print up 10 trillion and janet Yellen just drops it from a helicopter okay well how do those dollars get outside the united states well that'd be a trade deficit okay that's let's say 1.2 trillion a year all right great so now you've got those currency units leaving and those currency units were created without creating an offsetting liability. So you're not creating more future demand by lending them into existence. Okay, so then that 1.2 gets out circulating. Okay, well now you got 1.12 trillion to offset the, let's say 100 trillion in liability. See, it's it's not that much of a, of a difference, especially if the global economy is declining and you have velocity going down, there, there still might be even more demand for dollars, even though the supply increased slightly. See, so you just got to think through that stuff. And when you do, you realize that, yeah, this is, this is, it's good to think about, go through these thought experiments, but this stuff just takes a long, long, long time. And, you know, think about how, I mean, I used, and I got this from Brent Johnson, like right now, if you travel outside the United States, English is spoken in a lot of different countries. Like, like that's kind of the default language. Like here in Colombia, it's Spanish and English. And you know, even in Hong Kong, the you got Chinese, Mandarin, uh, probably Cantonese, but then you got English. I mean, English is just like the United States dollar. So just think if I told you that the BRIC countries were coming up with their own currency or their own language to compete with English for global hegemony. You know, you'd say, okay, well, English is probably pretty secure because it's tough to switch to a new language. Well, yeah, it's tough to switch to new currency units. Uh, now, it's easy to do that if you're just an individual. The average Joe and Jane, you can just switch from using dollars to yuan or dollars to euros or yen or something like that pretty easy. But the for the entire global monetary system to do it, that that's a whole, whole different ballgame. And if you think Google has a strong network effect, if you think Facebook or Twitter has a strong network effect. That that's child's play compared to the U.S. dollar. I would argue the U.S. dollar has the strongest network 
effect of of anything we've ever seen in human history then most people say oh george okay well how the, the fed's going to print so much money the government's going to print so much money it's going to create inflation here and the dollar's going to tank yeah you're right absolutely you're right 100 i don't know if i'd agree with the mechanics there but you're right we're going to have consumer price inflation in the united states but that doesn't mean the dollar's losing its reserve status it doesn't really have anything to do with that um it, it may but most likely will not you know you go back to the 1970s you go back to the 1940s i mean for heaven's sakes the 1940s were a massive inflationary decade I and mean, we had 1947 the cpi in the united states got up to 19 percent 19 percent and that's in the decade where the dollar formally became the world reserve currency so you've got to compartmentalize things and and, and you can't conflate what's happening in the united states the amount of currency units that are circulating chasing goods and services and and you can't conflate that with what's happening to the dollar outside of the united states with this hundred trillion dollar balance sheet but it's it, they're two separate things so anyway off that rant good question do you see yourself someday just like your friend kiyosaki and kim with personal choice of not having any children no i'm not opposed to having kids I don't want to go off on a massive tangent, but um, actually having kids outside of the United States, it's it's um, it would be a little different because it's so much easier to have assistance. So you you wouldn't have to give up as much freedom. Like as an example, let's use Angie and Joaquin as an example. Most of you know them. They're the the husband and wife team that manages all my real estate here in Columbia. And they've got three kids and they're by no means millionaires or billionaires or anything like that and they've got gals helping them every single day they, they've got a, a maid that does all the, the cooking and cleaning they've got a separate gal that just takes care of the kids i mean they're around constantly you know because they're self-employed uh but they have the, the freedom and flexibility to do other things that they want to do uh because they've got a lot of help and um that's very common outside of the united states uh inside not so much because in the United States, obviously, you'd have to be extremely, extremely wealthy to have that type of help. So anyway, that's a completely separate topic. But um, no, I'm not. I'm definitely not opposed to having kids. You just got to find the right gal. That's a little harder. <laughs> uh, question, George. If you had 10K and no gold, would you buy 10% now or wait for the crash? when I'd buy now. I don't really try to time that because that I buy gold not to have a capital gain or anything like that. I just buy it for the long run. You know, so if you're let's say that another way. If you think this decade is going to be inflationary like I do as far as the CPI in the United States. If you think it's going to look like the 1940s, which is what I think. Are are you going to worry about buying gold at 2000 compared to 1800? I mean, I, I'm not because by the 2030, I mean, by 2030, I wouldn't be surprised if gold is 10,000 an ounce. Would not be surprised at all. Now, I don't know what, it, what that would be in real terms, but uh, it might just be flat, you know, in real terms. But, um, you know, so if, if you, if your base case, let's say, is that gold's going to be at 10 grand by 2030, and you're buying, and again, if you're just buying it for insurance, you're not really buying it uh, as a, speculative asset or anything like that then I, I don't really worry about that i just buy whenever i have any extra a significant amount of money coming in and 
make sure it's about 10% of that portfolio. That's what I like to do. Question, is coffee cheaper in Columbia? I don't know. It's a hell of a lot better. I can tell you that. I mean, if you're if you're accustomed to drinking coffee in the United States, I can tell you right now, that would be undrinkable toilet water here in Columbia. And I'm, I'm not even exaggerating. I, I mean, people in Columbia would literally spit that out. It would be like an episode with Gordon Ramsay. You know how he, he puts something in his mouth and he's like, <laughs> like spits it out into the trash immediately that that's what a, a Colombian would do if they went to like Starbucks or something like that in the United States they just take a, a swig of it and just, blah, just spit it on the wall because it is just so disgusting uh the, the, it's just uh it's it's a different drink it's it's not even comparable to the coffee that you get in the United States but is it cheaper i would imagine so because everything here is cheaper you know i just uh last week or the week prior i retweeted something from my good buddy andrew henderson who's the, the nomad capitalist and he posts these uh, rankings of countries so like the safest country in the world the dangerous the top 10 dangerous countries in the world uh, you know whatever and he had like the top 10 cheapest countries in the world. And you can imagine, you know, the, the countries at the top were like Sudan, like Pakistan, like, like these countries where you probably wouldn't want to hang out <laughs> too long. Not exa exactly top tourist destinations. Um, but Colombia was number four. Number four. The fourth cheapest country on the planet. So you're looking at, I mean, I'm here in Medellin. For those of you who have been to Medellin, you know that it's 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 one of the most beautiful cities you will ever go to. I mean, it is staggeringly beautiful. The people are incredible. The food is fantastic. Coffee is great. I mean, there's so many activities. There, there's just it, it. There's there's theater. There's symphony. There's opera. There's nightclubs. There's live music. There's uh, I mean everything you could possibly want and more. And um, the cost of living is the fourth cheapest on the planet Earth. And, and the weather's perfect, by the way. And you're a three-hour flight from Miami. I mean, what's not to like? Now, the, the politicians are psychotic. <laughs> that's for sure. And there's a socialist running the country. But like I say, so me, show me one country in the world today that's not run by a psychopath and or a socialist <laughs> or communist, right? So, yeah. You know, will I be living here in six months? I don't know, because the world's so tumultuous and so volatile, I don't even look out that far. But for the next six months, um, or the next five months or whatever, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to be. And like I said, cost of living, it's it's basically unbeatable. Is now a good time to buy real estate in the U.S., generally speaking? Well, I've just got a simple rule. I can't give you any personal investment advice, but... Just the way I like to invest is just because my favorite investor of all time is Jim Rogers. Most of you know that. And he always just said, buy low, sell high. So for me, I just, I always took that to mean, okay, buy things when they're cheap and just sell them when they're expensive. So you'd have to just ask the question and that's the starting point. And if you don't get past that, then nothing else matters. So why even allocate the mental bandwidth to try to answering that question or trying to figure that out, right? So um, what I would start with here, just going through this experiment, is just ask yourself, is the real estate in the United States or Vegas Henderson, is it cheap or is it expensive, historically speaking, when you adjust for inflation? So the answer, the easy answer is it's definitely not cheap. And I think uh, another easy 
answer, although it might be a little more uh, require looking up a chart of prices and maybe some inflation. Is is it expensive? I'd say yes. Buy cheap, sell expensive. <laughs> That's what I try to do. Default risk. Let's see. Default risks, strict lending from banks have reached highest levels since 2008. Debt needs to be refinanced in an environment when rates are higher, values are lower with less liquidity depression. I'm not following this question completely, but I think what you're getting at is lending standards. The, the amount of lending period is going down. Jesse Felder just put up, uh, if you're not following him on Twitter, he's one of the people I follow. He's fantastic. And I've interviewed him for the Rebel Capitalist show a few times. And he put up a chart how bank lending is going down in the last two or three weeks, like a real-time chart where bank lending was way down. If you've been watching my videos, you know that M1 and M2 have been declining. And most people think that's because people are draining their savings account. And that's really not entirely true because it makes you believe they have less purchasing power. It is true that they're draining their savings account, but what they're doing is they're parlaying that into... Uh, a money market fund or treasury, something like that. So then that's, that pulls out of M2 because it goes into the TGA or the TGA uses that to pay off a bank, something like that. Or if it goes into a money market fund, likely it goes into reverse repo. So if you look at the balance sheet, it's still the same. It, it's not really shrinking. But that was because you look at loans and leases or you look at the amount of credit that banks are extending and it was still going up. Okay, well, once that starts going down, which is what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, and if, and we'll have to watch this very closely, but if M1 and M2 start to go down, while at the same time, the amount of bank lending is going down, then you might be able to come to the conclusion that the decrease in money supply is actually decreasing the balance sheet because those dollars on net balance are going to pay off loans, right? And because they're, the, the majority of dollars are being, are being used, drawing down out of savings to pay off loans and not by treasuries or not by money market funds, then on net balance, you have less currency units being created because when a loan is paid off, you're destroying M2. When a loan is created, you're, you're uh, creating M2. So my, again, my, just to be super clear here, if we see the amount of bank lending continue to go down. And if we see M1 and M2 continue to go down, it would be safe to assume that the reason those money metrics, if you will, currency metrics are going down is because the balance sheet of the average Joe and Jane is actually shrinking. Now you may say, okay, George, well, that means that they, they got more balance sheet capacity to borrow. Okay. Yeah. But usually if you see that balance sheet decline, it's because they're having to really, really tighten their belt. And if they're tightening their belt and the amount of currency units circulating are actually decreasing and the balance sheet is decreasing, therefore purchasing power is decreasing, that means aggregate demand most likely going down. And that, that, is, that is not good. That, that's something, that's what recessions are made out of. So those are, those are two charts that I would watch very closely. Uh, the amount of credit that, or amount of loans that banks are doing and M1. And, and specifically about M1, because there's like three metrics that the Fed uses. It's like checking accounts, savings accounts, currency, and circulation. I get hyper-focused on that uh, savings account metric within M1. Do you believe stocks are not based on evaluations earning overall value of company and rather based on algorithms? Well, I mean, that's all part of it. 
fundamentals are part of it. Algorithms are part of it. It's just to what degree. And I would argue that fundamentals are a part of the equation to a far lesser degree now than, say, 20 years ago. I mean, look at all the meme stocks. Come on. You're going to argue that's based on fundamentals? No chance, right? Uh, look at Tesla. I mean, look at any of these. And you can say Tesla's a great company. Okay, that's fine. But you can't really justify, at least you couldn't justify the price based on the fundamentals, for heaven's sakes. I mean, look at all these companies that don't even make profit. Okay, how, how are you? You say, well, in the future, they're going to make a lot of profit. Okay, great. But that's not <laughs> really pricing it based on the fundamentals of today. And, um, you know, someone that was in the business world, and uh, I never was involved with a publicly traded company, but just little teeny businesses. You know, just like, I mean, I never had any, but like small businesses that were under 20 million in revenue. And uh, for those types of businesses that I would look at, you know, if the guy was selling a, a, a dry cleaner or something, uh, okay. And if he's selling that business, I'm going to talk to the broker, I'm going to get the financials, and I'm going to offer a price for that business based on the last three years of financials, the, based on the profit. The, the real, how much are you putting in your pocket? I'll give you a multiple of that. Now, if he comes to me and says, oh my gosh, George, but they're building all these incredible neighborhoods in the area. There's a lot of development. There's a lot of rental properties going in, blah, 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 blah. And that means that the revenue for this dry cleaner is going to absolutely skyrocket. And therefore, um, what you should do is you should completely ignore the fact that I've made $250,000 every year of the last three years and just assume that in the next three years, I'm going to make a million dollars a year and then pay me the price based on that million dollars. See, when I say it like that, you'd be like, huh? No, F you buddy. Like, what are you talking about? No, I'm not going to pay you on what's going to happen in the future. Who knows? I'm going to pay you on what you're making right now. But for some reason, when you put that in terms of Tesla, you're like, oh, if, well, of course, everyone's going to drive these EVs and everyone's going to do this. And this is the, the the trend and this is the way the political winds are blowing and this is the way the consumer winds are blowing. And therefore, you got to hop on this bandwagon. No, but why would you pay a price for something based on what they might do in the future? No, no, no. You pay the price on, on what you did this year. And at least that's the way I look at it. So maybe that's old, antiquated. Maybe that's a stupid way to do things. but. Um, Again, way off on a tangent here, but that's, in my opinion, looking at fundamentals. So you ask yourself how many of the market participants have that mindset, and I would argue very few. So you've got to look at capital flows. You've got to look at, um, yes, algorithms. You've got to look at just what is uh, fashionable, and you've got to look at uh, psychology of the market. You've got to, you know, is that YOLO trade still on? Um and so when does that usually end? Well, that ends when you're at the bottom of a bear market. So, I mean, just the other day, Dogecoin went up by like 30% in 10 minutes because Elon Musk turned the Twitter logo into a Dogecoin, like that dog head. And the, the price went up by like 30%. Okay, that's how you tell that we are still in a market environment where psychology is very... Uh, risk on. There's a lot of froth in the market. When you're at the bottom of a bear market, 
or when you're at the bottom of a recession, you don't see that. Elon Musk could turn the logo of Twitter into anything and it wouldn't matter. In fact, people probably sell. That's when you know you're at the bottom of a, of a recession or the bottom of a depression or a, a bear market in this case with stocks. And so that's when fundamentals do matter, right? But we're not, we're not even close to that right now. Now, will we be by the end of 2023? Uh, possibly. If you're looking at the yield curve, uh, we'll have to wait and see how it plays out. Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Hope you are well. Got a quick question for you. Are you someone that realizes we are headed straight for an economic recession, maybe even worse? Do you also realize that the government is trying to restrict your freedom, liberty, and privacy on a daily basis? We've all heard in the news lately about central bank digital currencies, and it's not a matter of if we get them. It's simply a matter of when. But although you know we're facing all of these problems, you don't know what to do about it. How do you protect your wealth or grow your wealth when we're dealing with a very volatile economic environment? Or how do you maintain or increase your freedom and privacy when we have this woke Orwellian government that's trying to micromanage your life? Well, fortunately, got some good news for you. I have set up an event that is focused on helping you the rebel capitalist finds solutions to these problems. It's all set up to help you build wealth and thrive in this world of out of control central banks and big governments. That event is Rebel Capitalist Live. It's going to be absolutely incredible. It's in Orlando, May 12th to the 14th. We're going to have speakers like Peter Schiff, Mike Maloney, Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, Brent Johnson, Jeff Snyder, Robert Barnes, just to name a few. So to get more information on how you can attend this incredible event that's going to give you actionable intel that will help you prepare for the rest of 2023 and beyond, go to rebelcapitalistlive.com, and I will see you in Orlando. What are my thoughts on Andrew Tate? Well, I'm glad to see that he's out of uh, jail. I mean, that was completely ridiculous uh, based on the facts that I saw. I mean, they had two gals in there that were uh, claiming that he was innocent and this was just a joke. And uh, the, the judge wouldn't even accept their testimony because he said that he had somehow brainwashed them uh, to say that. And it was just the whole thing was bizarre. Um, I, I don't know why he got thrown in there to, to begin with. I think it I'm not I don't have any boots in the ground intel right? Other than just what you've heard in the media. It just seems very suspicious to me. I guess some information that I do have that you might not have is I, I don't know Andrew. I don't know Tristan, but I know a lot of his buddies. And um, I've spoken to his, his some of his good friends about this and and I trust them. And they say this is just, it's it's utter BS. It's complete and total nonsense. So that's the information I have. Uh, it seems very fishy to me. Glad to see that he's out. Um, if I, I don't have any, I'm not going to say he's guilty or innocent or any, I, I don't know that. Um, but if I had to bet on it, my base case would be that this is completely frivolous. And I would say there's a greater than zero probability that this was, I mean, who knows, the World Economic Forum. It was 
just someone that he was pissing off or maybe a government official in Romania is like, listen, we need to shut this dude up and we need to teach him a lesson here. And we need to, you know, he's just influencing too many people in what we believe is the wrong way. And this is how we're going to shut him up. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm saying there's definitely above a zero probability that that's what happened. But yeah, overall, good to see that he's out because uh, it seemed completely bogus to me. But uh, to be clear, I have I, I don't know if he's uh, innocent, guilty. I don't know any other facts other than what you have read. And uh, the only intel that I have uh, that you might not have is I do know some of his good buddies. And uh, in, in confidence, you know, they have told me that, um, or in private conversations, they have told me that this is just complete nonsense. Is interest paid by the Fed in things such as uh, reverse repo paid in dollars of bank reserves? I mean, bank reserves are denominated in dollars, but it's going to be bank reserves because that's the only thing the Fed can print. So it depends on how you're defined. So then the question says, is RRP actually money printing? It depends on how you're defining that. And most people define that. Most people don't even have a definition for it. But if you really had to sit them down and, and get an answer from them, a clear answer, it would most likely be, are there more currency units in the real economy chasing goods and services? So I think most people's, if M2 increased, that would be a necessary requirement for it to be quote unquote money printing. So then the question becomes, does RRP impact M2? Uh, no, in fact, it decreases. You could argue that it decreases M2. I mean, you could argue that it takes, well, not argue, it's a, it's a fact that it does take bank reserves off the bank's balance sheets. So you could argue it's it's the opposite of money printing. You could argue that it's QT. I think the main point that I want to make is when you're asking yourself, is it money printing? Just ask yourself, how does it impact M2? And if there is no impact on M2 whatsoever, in my mind, I think that if the average Joe and Jane actually, if you could kind of uh, get them to commit to an answer as to what is money printing, that that's kind of how they would view it. So that's kind of where I start. Does it impact M2? Yes or no? In fact, you know, that would kind of be interesting is um, if I did live in the States to just walk down the the street of like a a city center like Nashville or uh, Miami or something like that and just go there with like a camera and like a, a mic and just go up to like a hundred people and just ask them what is money printing <laughs> or what would constitute money printing and uh, I can't even imagine the answers I would get. But uh, my guess is is they, they, they wouldn't be, the majority of them would be completely incoherent. Oil cuts mean more inflation, higher gas prices, economic stagnation rate, Fed hikes has caused much damage while OPEC force rates hikes. Uh, now, see, I don't look at it that way. I actually look at it the opposite way. And uh, I was listening to my good buddy, Andrew uh, Steno Larson, or Andrew, um, Andreas, I'm sorry. Andreas, Andreas Steno Larson. And if you're not following him on Twitter and you're interested in macro, I'd suggest doing that. And uh, he did a study, and uh, this is a great point, where he goes back and looks at prior OPEC cuts, and nine times out of 10, 
the reason they're cutting is not really to raise rates, uh, the re or excuse me, raise um, prices, but it's because they see demand softening. So what they're doing is to uh, get ahead of demand destruction by a recession. So in order to get ahead of that curve, they'll go ahead and reduce production. So when you do get a recession and demand does tank, then the price doesn't go down to a low to, to a level that um, they find uh, inconvenient. Let's say, or there, it, it doesn't take oil prices down to a level that uh, is outside of their range of their range as to what is acceptable. That's probably the best way to say it. So I think for most of the people that are kind of in the know, it's it's not going to do anything to the Fed. In fact, if, if anything, the signal to the Fed is that don't raise rates because these OPEC plus countries are telling you that what they see as far as boots on the ground with all of their contacts and all the banks they know and all their suppliers and all the people they sell to and all these entities globally, they're seeing uh, demand decreasing because of recession very, very soon. And that's what prompted those cuts to begin with. So you're, 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 you're thinking that, oh, they're increasing or they're decreasing production. So prices go up. So that means more inflation. That means higher prices because oil is an input for everything that we buy. And that's going, if it, that puts upward pressure on inflation, then that's going to put the Fed in a compromising position because now they're going to have to increase rates. And that's kind of your line of thinking. And I, I, I don't, uh, agree with that. That's not my base case. My, like I said, my base case is the opposite. That uh, they're cutting production because they see disinflation, uh, deflation, and uh, and a global economic recession coming at us like that tsunami that we've been talking about on the Rebel Capitals channel. That economic financial tsunami that's coming at the short 500 miles per hour. Sovereign debt crisis makes gold and commodities explode in price. What's the solution in such a scenario? Yeah, I don't know that I'd agree with that. I think it depends on your time frame. If you're if you're talking about short term, what like over the t like a month or two, what would a sovereign debt crisis do? I don't think that would make gold and commodities explode. I think it'd make it tank because you're 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 talking about complete. I mean, that that's like a black swan crisis type deal, and in a black swan crisis, uh, people sell gold because it's the only thing they can sell. And we saw this during 2008. We saw this during March 2020. Gold got sold. It didn't get purchased. So uh, commodity, same thing. When you have a financial crisis, when you have a recession, when you have a depression, whatever, uh, commodity prices usually go down. They don't explode higher. And I, again, if, if you want confirmation of that, go right back to OPEC, the prior question. I think OPEC would agree. Now, if your question is what happens over a year or two, then I would agree because you have to consider, okay, we've got this crisis situation. We've got this economic recession. What's the government's response? So if the government's response and assuming that we have disinflation deflation, like we had in uh, during the GFC, then the government's response is to stimmies, you know, direct transfer payments. Uh, even if they're not increasing M2, they're taking low velocity money from savings and turning it into high velocity money through stimmy checks. And uh, and then also, you know, the government's response will most likely hurt global supply chains that are already fractured, that are already broken. 
and you combine that with a global economy that is bifurcating into BRIC countries and West countries. And um, you're going to see on the, su the supply side, I think is where you're going to see a lot of problems, at least over the next 10 years. Uh, it might not be so much on the demand side, although short term, I think you could have some big problems there. So again, short term, I, I don't, I would see, you know, maybe gold goes up. Uh, a debt crisis, I think it probably gets sold off a bit. Same thing with commodities. But then longer term, I think the government's response to that would make that sell-off a very good buying opportunity. What are your thoughts on relatively high correlation between changes in the size of the central bank's balance sheet and the price of the S&P 500? Well, definitely a, a correlation there. Although, I, I don't know how that correlation has held up after 2020. I shouldn't. No, it's definitely held up after 2020. I should have said, I don't know how that correlation has held up after 2021 when they announced the rate. I, actually, it's probably still holding up there. Yeah, now that I think about it. But I don't know that there's anything to it. I think it's just, I don't know that there's a causal thing there other than from a psychological standpoint. I think when they're doing QE, uh, just the market participants, it's kind of a signal to them that the Fed has your back and the Fed wants you to buy. Therefore, you don't fight the Fed type thing. But um, the argument that from a mechanical standpoint, that at, that actually creates currency units that would not exist otherwise to go in and buy risk assets, I don't buy that at all. I don't, it's, it's just, and it's, it's, it, and if the argument is that, well, it lowers rates and therefore, you know, those entities prefer to buy stocks because they can only get 1% on a 10 year. Uh, not really, because if you look at QE, often there's an inverse relationship. So it, meaning that the, uh, if the fed is, uh, dropping rates, or doing QE, excuse me. So the Fed's balance sheet is going up. Um, a lot of times, interest rates will actually go up. So I shouldn't have said inverse. I should have said counterintuitive, excuse me. So a counterintuitive relationship. So you would think that if they are doing QE, that's more demand for treasuries, the price would go up, the yields would go down. Uh, but if you look at a chart of QE and look at like the 10 year, you see that often the opposite is true. When the Fed comes in, buys treasuries, does QE, the uh, price actually goes down often, therefore yield up. And so I, I, it, it, it gets tricky there. And also this, this to believe that there's a causal relationship there outside of psychology, you would have to believe that the bank's balance sheets were somehow constrained. And you would also have to believe that a bank reserve somehow has purchasing power that a treasury doesn't. And that doesn't make any sense to me, right? Because it, it, most people just, okay, so what you're doing is you're just, it's an asset swap, really. It's just you're swapping a treasury for uh, bank reserves or cash. All right, well, 90% of the, oh, I shouldn't say 90, but a majority of the entities that own those treasuries or that would be selling them, they're, they're, the bank reserves and treasuries are indistinguishable as far as what they can do on their balance sheet. You can just take those, like, like, let's think about that for a moment. Imagine if there's a hedge fund that says, oh my gosh, we have all, we have a billion dollars and 
I mean, we really, really would love to buy stocks right now. But unfortunately, we can't because we have all these stupid treasuries on our balance sheet. So what we're going to have to do is we're just going to sit back and wait until the Fed comes in and buys these treasuries from us. Then we'll have the money to go buy all the stocks that we wish we could buy right now. You see, when I say it like that, it sounds ridiculous. Because you just ask yourself, okay, uh, if you want to buy the stocks, why don't you just sell the treasuries? Exactly. <laughs> or if you want to keep the treasuries, why don't you just use them as collateral to borrow the money and then buy the stocks? And then you say, oh, George, well, you're looking at the amount of currency or the amount of purchasing power of the bank's balance sheet capacity and aggregate total. You see that there's not going to be that liquidity to lend for that hedge fund to borrow to buy those shares in the first place. Or maybe there's not enough liquidity to sell the treasuries or something like that. And it's just it's just nonsense because that would that that's assuming that the only entity that provides liquidity is the Fed. No, no, what? What, what are we talking about here? No, the major provider of liquidity is the commercial banking system. We all know that. There's no constraint on liquidity. The, the banks create money, period, end of story. So now you could argue that there's an environment where the banks aren't willing to create that money. Okay, but that doesn't mean their balance sheet is 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 really constrained. That's a completely different topic of conversation. See, so when you look at it that way, I, I just don't know how. Now, if you say, okay, that hedge fund, that billion dollar hedge fund that we were talking about, now they have uh, treasuries and then, oh, wait, the Fed's doing QE. Aha, so then the hedge fund manager comes in and says, ah, look, the Fed wants us to buy. I'm not gonna fight the Fed. The Fed's got my back. Uh, the Fed wants asset prices to go up. And if the Fed wants asset prices to go up, most likely they're gonna go up. So I'm gonna sell all these treasuries. And I'm gonna go buy risk assets. All right, but that's, you see, that, that that's QE creating an environment that gives a tailwind to risk assets as a result of psychology, not necessarily because there's more liquidity in the system or anything that happens on a mechanical side or within the plumbing of the financial system. And that's why I think there's a correlation. How do I see Ukraine ending? I wish I knew. I mean, I have no idea. Obviously, I'd want it to end as soon as possible. How do I see it ending? I, I, I haven't even got a base case for you. What impact will that have on Mark? I mean, I, who knows? It, it really depends how it, how it ends. So yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm gonna have to punt on that one. I, I don't, uh, I'm just a innocent bystander, a bystander like pretty much all of us are. I just hope that it ends sooner than later. And I obviously I hope it doesn't escalate beyond where it is today because that's a, that's a, that's a, a risk that we should all be very aware of. Have you ever been invited by Tim Pool as a guest on TimCast IRL? No, I, I haven't. Not that I know of. Usually all the requests go to Adriana or Angelique, and uh, they don't usually tell me about those requests, <laughs> usually. Uh, so if they would have gone that direction, then I, I might not even have known about it. But I think they know who Tim Pool is, so they would have forwarded that to me. Um, other than that, well, I guess I don't know how they'd get a hold of me. But I, I, I would assume that they have not reached out. But uh, I'm a big fan of the show. 
big fan of Tim Pool. I, I I don't get the chance to watch the live streams too often, but sometimes if I get a quick quick break during lunch, uh, I'll watch one of their clips from the show or something like that. As a fellow macro addict, listening to them talk about the economy, yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, obviously their hearts in the right spot. Uh, they value the freedom, liberty, free market capitalism we talked about to a certain degree. But yeah, when I, when I do hear them uh, talk about the money printing as an example, I come kind of like, oh my gosh, yeah, they're 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 definitely in the the normie bucket uh, when it comes to their understanding of the the global monetary system and macro. But hey, you can't blame them for that, right? I'm still a huge fan, and I'd be honored to to go on the show. Did I watch the UFC last night? I absolutely did. Fantastic fight. I, uh, the Israel guy, I mean, he was backed up. I, I thought the other guy was going to knock him out. And I, I guess he was playing possum. And then he just comes out, just pam, gives him that, that left hook. And then pam comes back with another left hook. And the guy was out. I mean, that was just a fantastic fight. So yeah, really cool. Could global curve inversions simply be due to planned delisting of Euro dollar futures? Timing lines up. I don't know how that would affect the treasury market. I mean, there might be some sort of, I don't know how they'd be tied in. I'd have to think that one through. But just answering this question right off the cuff, I would say no. I mean, maybe there are certain curves, but when I talk about the inversions, I'm usually talking about the the treasury market and just you know keeping it basic with the twos and the tens. Do you think Fed will use CBDC to try to regulate banking, bank lending with digital currency fractional reserve requirements? No, I think this is a, a great question, Nathan, but I, I think this is a fundamental misunderstanding of how a central bank digital currency would work. And um, this is a great question. And, and so many people think that a CBDC is just some alternate currency that's going to compete with the dollar. It's going to be Fed coin. It's, uh, it's just... Yeah, people get really confused on this, and understandably so. But you've got to realize a, a CBDC, my shirt here, is really just you or the retail, the individuals, the entities in the real economy having an account with the Fed. So when will you know there's a CBDC? They're not going to come out, in my opinion, they're most likely not going to come out and announce it because they know there's a lot of bad PR around a CBDC. So when you'll know they have a CD, CBDC, regardless of what they call it or don't call it, they might not even call it anything, is when they start inviting individuals to take their dollars from Wells Fargo and move them over to the Fed. And so just imagine there's a banking crisis, depositors are taking a haircut because the 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 deposits uh, exceed what is what the FDIC can handle and therefore they come in there's this crisis and they say hey we've got a solution uh what we need to do to make sure that we can ensure these deposits and to make the depositors whole because there's not enough FDIC to cover it we can just take the liabilities those deposit liabilities from Wells Fargo and we can just move them more to the Fed's balance sheet and then we don't have to worry about it because the Fed can't go bust. And I I would imagine that even a lot of people that are adamantly opposed to a CBDC 
under those conditions and presented that way would say, oh yeah, this is great. Yeah, no brainer. Why do I want my currency units with Silicon Valley Bank when they can go bust? I'm just going to move them over to the Fed. Then I don't even have to worry about this. I can get back to business. I can get back to taking my kid to soccer practice and watching Monday night football and yada, 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 yada. But for those who understand the, the nuance here, they realize that that is a central bank digital currency once that happens. And that's a huge blind spot for most people. And that's why I kind of pound the table uh, for and try to encourage people to split these hairs because I think the devil's in the details. And I, I strongly believe that we could go through a scenario where even though the majority of Americans are completely opposed to a CBDC, we get one anyway, because what the Fed does, th those people don't even realize that that is a CBDC because they think it's this alternate currency. currency. They don't even realize that, no, it's just you, your, your dollar liability is being an asset of the Fed or excuse me, liability of the Fed. And there's a couple other other variables or a couple other components that would be required to, for that CBDC or the mechanics of that, uh, what most people consider a CBDC in order to have, for it to have the impact and for it to uh, give the central planners the leverage that they would want to create this Orwellian type of utopia. There would be a few other things that would be required, but I, I don't want to get into that here. That's the main component though. So to answer your question, uh, would bank lending be fractional reserve? No, uh, that's in probably, that's another way they'll, they'll try to sell it to you. Is it from now on that eliminates fractional reserve banking? Because you see with fractional reserve banking, that means they're lending out more than the bank reserves they have because there's a difference between base money and broad money. Well, if everyone's dollars were a liability of the fed, you see what they're doing there? There is, they're, they're merging base money and broad money. So if they're merging base and broad, if those two are literally one in the same, there's no more fractional reserve lending. Because what the Fed would be creating, if they're issuing a mortgage, a car loan, whatever, would be actual bank reserves. And so if, if they're, um, let's say, creating a loan for $500,000, they're just taking those $500,000 in bank reserves, putting them into the account of the borrower. And then that goes to the seller and they have an account with the fed. There's, there's no fractional reserve there. It's it's, it would be full reserve banking. And, um, you know, it, it's very, you know, not to knock on Andrew Yang, but remember when he was running for president and he was trying to pitch that whole UBI thing by saying that this was, Oh, this isn't my idea. This is Milton Friedman's idea trying to make it seem as though he was a real free market guy, you know, Andrew Yang, when of course he took what Milton Friedman's idea and completely distorted it. But I think that the central planners would, would do something similar. You know, all you gold guys, all you Tucker Carlson's, all you Bitcoin people, you listen, you sit there and say how you want sound money, how you hate fraction reserve banking. Well, look, this is the solution. If we just move all the liabilities over to the Fed's balance sheet, now we have a banking system that can never go bust. And we have full reserve banking. You Austrians should absolutely love this. See how easy a pitch it is? And for people who aren't paying attention, even Austrians, even gold guys, Bitcoin guys and gals, 
they might, if they're not paying attention, they might be like, yeah, let's do that. That's great. As long as it's not a CBDC, because I don't want that. Not even realizing that that's what they're signing up for. That That's why it is so important to understand the plumbing of the financial system. That's that's why it's so important to understand these mechanics and 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 how they actually work behind the scenes. One of the many reasons. All right, guys, let's do I want to remind everyone one more time cuz we're getting really close to the the deadline for buying tickets to Rebel Capitalist Live. So let's see if I can actually do this the right way with a screen share. There we go. And just as a reminder, for those of you who weren't on the live stream at the very beginning, here are the speakers. Incredible group. This is going to be an absolutely amazing conference. But I think one of the best things about the conference is just being able to meet, interact, and hang out with your fellow rebel capitalists. But as far as speakers, Mike Maloney, Peter Schiff, Robert Barnes, Kenny McElroy, Chris McIntosh, Jason Hartman, Lynn Alden, Simon Black, MC, but my good buddy Robert Helms, Brent Johnson, Jeff Snyder, Bob Murphy, all speaking, plus yours truly. So this is an event that you do not want to miss. May 12th through the 14th, Orlando. Get your tickets ASAP at rebelcapitalistlive.com. All right, let's do some shout-outs, and I got to bounce over to the Rebel Capitalist Pro live stream. Who do we have hanging out with us on this Easter evening? We've got Biff Henderson, <laughs> Frank, Frank and Nose. Baron Gatano, RR in the house, Becky B, some OGs. Thanks for hanging out, guys. Uh, Matt Bittner, Joe Potter, Matthew Sem- Seminuk, All Nighter Hider, a proper OG in the house. <laughs> Crypto Beauty, Gandalf, Gray, Brooklyn Lynn 52D, Lexi, Marsh Maz, Mixile. Antonio, Gregory Stewart, Doc Fish, Red Zone, Ben, Raymond Paul, Daniel Fernandez, Felix Blasksley. All right, guys. Enjoy the rest of your holiday. Make sure that you're always standing up for freedom, liberty, free market capitalism. We'll see you in the next video. Thank you for listening to The Rebel Capitalist Show. For more content like this, check out The Rebel Capitalist blog at georgegammon.com or go to The George Gammon YouTube channel. 